Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Kind. Make It Kind. M-I-P. With Masamela Mafumo. Mark Thompson. Make It Kind. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, in light of the most recent election here in the United States, and the fact that so many people voted to reelect Donald Trump, someone who is without a doubt a racist and a xenophobe and a homophobe. It raises some serious concerns about what has happened to America, in America, since the presidency, the transformative, the seemingly transformative presidency of Barack Obama. So we thought we'd do well to speak with an author who's written a book about how he himself has tried to find his blackness in a white world. The author of the book is Cole Brown, and the title of the book is Gray Boy. Cole Brown joins us on Make It Plain from Sydney, Australia. Cole, how are you, my brother? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's a pleasure to have you. What are you doing? What in the world are you doing in Sydney? I moved here in February, uh, which which as we now know was not excellent timing to move across the world. Uh, came here for a job, uh, almost immediately went into lockdown. Uh, but now I'm a full time writer, so I, I, I write here in Sydney, uh, both for local news outlets and then I cover uh, I cover the U.S. politics for some of the national broadcasts as well. So I guess the timing was bad in terms of the pandemic. How were things in Sydney in terms of COVID and the pandemic? Our our COVID experience speaks to uh, the importance of good governance in a way. Um, they they took it really seriously here. Uh, so so our lockdown was significant uh, in those early months. Uh, what would have been the spring and early summer for for the U.S. 
Um, but we came out of it and now COVID is nearly non-existent. There's some major cities that haven't had a new case in, in over a week. Um, so, so we're pretty much opened up at this point because we took it pretty serious at the outset. So you're going to stay there or you're going to come back to the States? I'm going to come back uh, soon, actually. I, there, there's a, I hope a bit of follow on work with the book that we're about to discuss that, that I'm excited to get to and, uh, and, and some other projects I'm working on as well. Um, uh, that, that'll be bringing me back pretty soon. So let's talk about the book, Gray Boy. That's an interesting title. Shall I presume that speaks to um, the gray area in which you have found yourself living your life? Yes, that would be a, a safe presumption. Um, the, the, the title Gray Boy, I actually borrowed, the, the language itself I actually borrowed um, from, from a poem that's, that the quote is, is, uh, is used as an epigraph before one of the chapters. Um, it's a, an Amiru Baraka poem, I think it's called uh, Poem to Half-White College Students. Uh, and in it, he is exceedingly critical of the kids that I uh, attempt to discuss and present in the book, um, black kids who are sort of in his estimation, not black enough. Um, and I think the quote goes something like, are you sure you're not an imitation gray boy? Are you sure you are not so full of Richard Burton that Elizabeth Taylor is coming out of your ears? Um, and, and he's and he's critical of that population. So I kind of liked one once I, re, I was I was batting around several titles for a long time. But once I read that poem, um, I really liked the idea of borrowing that language. Uh, so for a long time, it was called Imitation Gray Boy. Uh, and then it ended up I ended up just going with Gray Boy. So that was one presumption. But then the other one, I thought it might have been because you were Hoya. Gray. Is that that? But that didn't have anything to do with it. Right? It is. That that has nothing to do with it, but I am a proud Hoya, and, and this book was born in the hallways of Georgetown University. So I want to get to college, but but first let's start. Um, you were raised in Philadelphia. Do I have that right? Yes, I was. I was born in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, spent probably the first four or five years of my life there. Went back regularly thereafter, um, but but called Philly home for just about all of my life until I went to college. So when when was finding your blackness? How early in life did that become an issue? I, I think that um, those those racial lines are things that kids begin to negotiate pretty early in life, um, and, and and even and I think research even shows that as well. We we develop a consciousness of race pretty early in life. So so for me, um, I think my earliest sort of racialized memories are probably third grade, second grade. Um, and at that point, I think that they're sort of innocuous, um, I, you know, not not they lack it's kind of the, the the frustration that comes later in life comes in from the middle school with um, with sort of more aggressive, uh, you know, racial confrontations. Um, you went to white schools as you were growing up in Philadelphia, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I went to I went to uh, private school uh, basically from the time I got to Philly until I graduated. And so you saw you saying that you exposed those racial lines even as, as a child. Well, I think this is certain like you, um, you 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 begin to understand that that my being black, my being the only black person in most of the rooms that I would enter and exist in um, 
you begin to understand early on that there is some difference to negotiate there. Um, I think that that comes in part from your parents. I mean, my, my parents told me in no uncertain terms, I am not your white friend's parents. And, and what does that mean at age, you know, eight, nine years old, trying to understand that there's, they're clearly calling upon some knowledge that I don't have yet. Um, and then, and then once you get to middle school, particularly, I think as, as boys and girls start to look at each other differently, I think then it becomes a bit, a bit more difficult. Um, then, then the, the, there is, there's just a, a more of a bite to it. There's more animosity to it, I think. Um, then you begin to begin to confront racism as such rather than just difference. You mentioned the Baraka poem and college white students. What was your experience like uh, at Georgetown? You were there many years after I was there. Um, yes. With all of my radical behavior. <laughs> I didn't care how white it right. was. I acted super right. black. Um, right. which means a lot of trouble, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, yes. <laughs> what was your experience like at, at, at Georgetown in terms of negotiating in a white world and finding your blackness? But hold, I'm jumping ahead. Y- your parents. So uh, are, are your parents multiracial or, or just what? Are they black? No, no. My, my mother is, um, Ethiopian. Uh, so, so I spent, I spent time, uh, going to Ethiopia, you know, to visit grandma and grandpa when I was younger. Um, and my dad is black American from the Midwest. So I spent a lot of time in West Virginia and Indiana, uh, growing up as well. Cause, cause we frequently have these types of conversations with individuals of, of mixed race parentage. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, as far as I'm concerned, both your parents are black, one African, one African American. Yeah. Um, yeah. With, yeah. So, so I guess then, even with your parents being um, both people of the of the black and African diaspora, the fact that you went to some of these white schools was where you still had to negotiate your blackness. Yeah, I, 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 one um, as you mentioned, I mean, like unequivocally, we are black and I am black. I, I uh, both of my parents. I mean, my mom, even though being from from Ethiopia, uh, was raised largely here in the U.S. Both of them are African American and probably so. Um, I, I so this was the 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 in betweenness, the grayness that I'm attempting to sort of dissect and negotiate in the book is not at all one of a biracial lineage. It's more, um, you know, my parents, both of them, worked their butts off and were able to afford us a much better life um, than they were given. And and as a result, they you know they placed us in this environment that was almost exclusively white. Um, and there were clear advantages to that. I mean, the fact that I'm calling you from Sydney, Australia speaks to one of those advantages. Um, I'm not blind to those facts. Um, but there were also some, I think, unintended consequences to being, to being surrounded by dissimilarity, being surrounded by people that do not look like me and have certain preconceived notions of what I should be, um, not what I am. Um, so, so, so that's what I attempt to wrestle with in the book is this negotiating sort of not a biracial in between this, but feeling in between because I am black and yet this this environment does not does not recognize me as I am. Um so tell us about Georgetown then. What what we what were your experiences like there? I had a really positive experience at Georgetown. I think that Georgetown um I certainly understand what you mean. I mean Georgetown had like many 
uh, PWIs, predominantly white institutions, colleges have, um, almost like a subculture that was black. Like it was almost like it was almost like there was the mainstream Georgetown, and then there was Black Georgetown, which was like its own, you know, like sovereign nation. Um, kind of like how I kind of how I speak about the black table and my experience with that in high school. It was almost like that. Um, I think that my experience growing up in places like Georgetown, though, allowed me, frankly, to cross, you know, cultural lines in ways that maybe others wouldn't have been able to. Um, and I like that. I like that Georgetown, you know, my experience in Philly was one of largely rich white people, black people, working class. I mean, like, it was like, there was only a certain, there was a finite number of archetypes that, that you know, that existed in Philly, it, it felt like. Um, it wasn't as diverse as diverse gets. In Georgetown, I had friends from all over the world um, um, and, and was able to learn from their experiences and cross cultural lines in a way that, that um, I think my, my, my experience uh, uh, endowed me that ability. Philly, how did you feel yes. about the fact that Philly came through and helped elect the first yeah. African-American woman vice president? Uh, there's only one way to feel. I mean, like I, I have never felt as much FOMO as, as it's, I've never felt such a longing to be back home as I did a couple of days ago, seeing the celebrations in the streets uh, in Philly. Um, I'm so proud of, of the work that was done there. I'm not surprised by it whatsoever, but I am absolutely proud of it. What are your thoughts about the state of race relations and all of us finding blackness, um, having just survived this Trump era or barely, um, yeah. racism in the pandemic, we're dying disproportionately. Yeah. There's been the reckoning, yeah. there's been Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, the list yeah. goes on and on, Jacob Blake. Um, how do you feel? And, and seeing, as I said earlier, how many millions of people who right. voted for this racist in the White House? Yeah. What are your feelings about that as you have been trying to find your blackness? Um, what about the state of blackness for all of us? What do you think about it? You know, I, there's a chapter in the book um, that was written entirely the week after Donald Trump was elected in 2016. Um, in many ways, it was cathartic for me to, to process through many of those emotions in the wake of that election. And um you know, what I say in that chapter and, and how I felt in that moment was that I don't know how much hatred Donald Trump inspired, but he certainly unmasked um, a lot that that was pre-existing. You know, he gave voice to just clear racial anxieties that exist for a much broader swath of the American populace than I think many of us knew in 2020. Um, I think that that effect, that unmasking effect, that revealing of um, racism um continued on throughout his four years. And and we continued to see just how deep, deeply ingrained those racial anxieties that racism is in the, just in the fabric of America. I mean, like, you know, it, it is, it, it is a part of America um, and so much of our history. And, and so, so for those reasons, I think that, you know, now that we have seen, you know, the depths of that hatred and now that we've seen that, that despite um, an abject failure of four years, uh, 
you know, he's still able to garner whatever he'll end up with 48% or something of the, of the American vote. Um, you know, I'm, I'm left not wholly optimistic in this moment, despite the fact that, that, uh, I'm, I'm super encouraged by the election of Biden, of course, obviously with Kamala by her, his side. Um, I, I look at what we, what we've all collectively gone through these last four years. And I think to myself that it's going to take a lot of time to heal, heal these scars. Um, I'm also aware that Trump, just because he has been voted out of office, um, is not going to ride off into the sunset. You know, I think that, that Trumpism and Trump as the figurehead of Trumpism, um, will exist for many years into the future. And I am concerned about, about the damage that he can continue to bring upon our system um, when he's not unencumbered by a bureaucracy that would, would, would hold him back. So, I, so I'm concerned. <laughs> to, 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 in summation, I am deeply concerned. Where were you on the path to finding your blackness in a white world when Trump was elected? You know, I think if you had asked me um, if you had asked me in that moment, I probably would have told you that I was, that I was pretty far down that path. Um, I, I probably would have told you that I had completed that journey. In fact, um, you know, this book, this book I started when I was a junior at Georgetown, I just released last September. So or this past September. So, um, so it took me four full years to complete. And I, and I think in some ways it was actually like, uh, you know, the, the book is about the journey, but the book also inspired the journey. You know, the book, the book charts the journey in real time as well. And, um, which, and the Trump chapter does not come at the end of that journey. Um, there's still been a few key events. I mean, there's, there's been, there's been key moments during his presidency where again, we just saw like how ugly things can get. Um, and that was still shocking to me, even even at age 22, when I considered myself a skeptic. Um, so so I was far along, but not quite all the way there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I can only imagine all of us were thought we were a little bit further along because we after all, we yeah. did have first black president that happened. Yeah. You yeah. know, and black folk didn't elect him on our own. That's what's been jarring to me. You know, I mean, historically not jarring because it's the same thing that happened right after Reconstruction. You know, the white lash, right. sharp white lash back in the yeah. just unfettered racism. But this ain't Reconstruction. It's ain't 1860s. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I think I think your point is well taken. Um, Even with all the skepticism we're bound to have as black folk, yeah. this thing just took us for a loop right yeah and i and i think that going into you know i think many of us really learned that lesson i think that going into election 2020 you heard from people uh how reticent they were to even acknowledge the possibility of biden winning i mean like you talked to you talked to people a week and a half ago two weeks ago and it's like despite the fact that the polls which we now know of course we're not on, we're not right. But but despite the fact that the polls were saying that this was going to be, you know, the blue tsunami, you know, you talk to people and like and like they're they're not even willing to acknowledge that as a possibility. They're saying, you know, you know, Trump's going to do it again. They're now doubling down and betting on um, um, racism in America. And and frankly, like 
even though Biden did win, I'm not sure that that thesis was disproven. I mean, like, you know, like it was close enough that 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 racism is still a safe bet. You know, like like it was it was close enough that that if you're if you're betting on, you know, a, a demagogue that that will demean me and my kind, um, you, you're you're within the margin. Um, and that that that's that's an ugly side of our of our country. What would you say cold to those who now want to find their own blackness in post Trump, hopefully post Trump white right. <laughs> America? Right. right. Um, man, that's interesting. I think that, you know, that so, so there's a part of it that was not, um, there's a part of it that was out of my control there, you know, there are key events and there's key events in any, in any person's life that, that are out of their control, but you know, are formative. The Trump election was one and the death of Trayvon, the killing of Trayvon Martin was another. Um, I think time will show me that the, that the murder of George Floyd was another. There, there's these key events that, um, that spur change in one. Right. But then I think there were some things that are self-starting. Um, or at least had been handed down to me that made a real difference as well. Um, my parents forced me, and I write about this in the book, my parents forced me when young to read all sorts of stuff that no other eight-year-old was reading. Um, autobiography of Malcolm X, Black Boy, Native Son, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain, all of the, you know, the, the canon of Black literature that tells our stories authentically that that I was not shown in schooling. Um that was significant for me. That changed how I viewed myself and how I viewed my people. Um, and in terms of of things that are, you know, that within one's control, I think educating, you know, yourself about our own history is an important is an important factor. Yeah, and and we all must do that. What's the atmosphere like in Sydney in terms of race relations and you being? an African-American in Sydney. What's that like? Yeah. Yeah. There's no black people in Sydney. Like, like right. point blank. Like, like, like there's, there's just not many black people um, um, in Sydney and Australia writ large. And in fact, even that term black is used differently here. Um, uh, if you were to speak about a black person in, in an Australian context, you're typically talking about an indigenous person rather than um, an African or African-American. Um, I, so it's been, it's been, it's been a really interesting time to be here. You know, there was, there was a massive black lives matter protest in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And, you know, I was out there. I like, I'd never been around so many white people telling me my life mattered. Like it was like, it was just a whole lot of white people shouting about uh, BLM. Um, So it's been, there have been at times, you know, like deeply isolating moments, particularly in the wake of George Floyd. Um, not feeling as though I was, you know, close enough to my community, sort of grappling with that. Uh, that said, Australia does have its own deeply problematic, troubling, abusive history with um, indigenous and aboriginal people here. Um, and I, it's interesting because, because I've, I, I'm in the media quite a bit here now and, and am often asked, you know, my opinion on those issues. And I have to remind people that I just got here eight months ago. Like, you know, and this, this is, this is an issue that is, that is centuries long. And, um, I think people often assume that I would have some insight into the plight of, 
uh, indigenous people here because of my status as an African-American. It's just simply not the case. Um, so there's, there's, it's, it has its own troubling history is my point. Um, um, divorced from Mars. Yeah. So I asked you how far along you were. Lastly, where are you today? Where do you feel you are on this quest to find your blackness in this white world? You know, I, I, I think I'm pretty good. Um, I think I'm, I think I'm comfortable. I mean, I, you know, what so much of the book is about is about being uncomfortable is about being in these spaces, whether they be black or white and not feeling as though I, I fit snugly um, because of the ways in which I differ from, you know, whatever crowd I'm amongst. And, and I don't get that anymore. I mean, I think Georgetown took me a long way down that path. Actually. Um, I feel good about, you know, I can do something like move to Sydney, Australia and acknowledge the pros with the cons and leave here with a, a pretty fantastic experience. Um, I feel that way about many of the spaces I enter at home um, as well. Um, all of that, all of the, those reflections should come with the caveat that uh, there was a time when I would have said that before um, and then Trump was elected. So I guess in some sense, who knows? Um, but but I do I do think I've come pretty far, pretty long way on that journey. Uh, and, and like where I've landed in the book, the book charts that journey, both my, in myself and in others. When, um, so when are you coming back home? I think, I think first week of January, just before the inauguration, there's, there's like one project I'm wrapping up here. Um, it might even be a bit sooner. Right, right. Okay. Okay. And what about your parents? Your parents still with you? Yes. Um, my mother, uh, lives here in Australia, actually. Uh, so, so it's been nice to spend time with her. We, we were in lockdown together. First time moving in with my mother as an adult. So that was an experience, but we got through it. Um, my father is in the U S. Okay. Very good. Well, my brother, congratulations on your book, folks, the book gray boy, uh, inspired by an Amiri Baraka poem, finding the title that it is finding blackness in a white world fellow Hoya Hoya Saxa uh, Cole Brown uh, has been my special guest Cole thanks for joining us on Make It Plain and congratulations on the book man great work absolutely thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it All right. thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain please remember to listen like subscribe and wherever you get your podcasts please give the show a five star rating And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, 
or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.